Well, good morning to all of you. I don't know what the appropriate message topic is to have on a morning like this, but I'm going to be talking about hope for the church. So sometimes I feel like when I preach, I'm just scolding you all, and maybe I'm scolding myself too. But I hope that this is a sermon that is uplifting. There was a man by the name of George Weishart who later became Bishop of Edinburgh, and he was in 1650 in prison because he was a chaplain in the Marquis of Montrose's military force. And I don't want to go into all that, but he was sentenced to be executed. And since I already told you he later became a bishop, then you know he probably wasn't executed. But he got all the way up to the scaffold, and in those days in Scotland, they gave people the opportunity to have one of the psalms sung at their execution. I'm not sure. That's a very odd thing to have done at your execution, but maybe if you're going to get executed, you know, having a psalm sung would be a good thing. So he asked them to sing Psalm 119. And, um, and so, of course, it took them a while. And about two-thirds of the way through the psalm, a pardon came for him. And so then he um, went back to prison. He, didn't, he wasn't released at that point. Um, and so, you know, sometimes I feel like we feel like we're prolonging the inevitable. We're on the scaffold. And there's uh, something bad coming. And... You know, if you ask for Psalm 119, it just is going to take longer for whatever bad happens to happen. And yet, I think that we have hope this morning. And hope not because of ourselves, but hope because of the God that we serve and because of the church that we are in. The greater the darkness facing us, the greater the need to see the light beyond. And that's what hope is, isn't it? It is seeing light when we are standing in the middle of a cave. So I don't want to think so much about hope for individuals, although, you know, um, you know, some people have trouble seeing the forest because there's so many trees there, and some people have trouble seeing the trees because there's so many forests, so much forest. And, you know, I think probably both people have something to be said. Um, but in a church, there are individuals, and if there's hope for the church, there's hope for each one of us too, isn't there? So it does seem like the church is under a constant attack these days. Um, you know, there's people around us who are teaching unscriptural things. There are church leaders who are falling into sin and immorality. And it is discouraging sometimes if you read the news, and it seems like every time you turn around, um, there are mega church pastors who are struggling with one thing or another. And, you know, even here at Bethel, we've had some hard times. And yet, we have hope this morning. So I, I think about hope from a doctor's standpoint. So I remember having a patient who came in to see me, and she had been in the hospital, and um, she had an infection. But when she was in the hospital, she'd had a CAT scan done. And the doctors didn't tell her the results of the CAT scan. They left that for me to do. But the CAT scan showed that she probably had metastatic cancer. And she said to me, what does this mean? And 
I couldn't tell her the answer. You know, as a doctor, you want to give hope. You want to say it's going to be okay. This is something that's easy to take care of. There's medicine that will take care of that. But our hope in that situation is dependent on the medicines. It's dependent on the doctors. And, of course, it's dependent on God, too. But this morning, we have hope. I was thinking as well about um, seeing a little boy standing on top of a, a high spot. And his father just held out his arms to him and said, Jump, Bobby! And Bobby jumped right into his dad's arms because he knew his dad was faithful and was going to catch him. And this morning, we know that God has us. He will catch us. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19, talk about the charge that Jesus gave for the church. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So this is the beginning, we would say, of the church. It's not founded on Peter. You know, some people would say that it's founded on Peter. You know, he was the first bishop of Rome and all this kind of stuff. And it's founded on Peter's belief that Jesus was the anointed one sent from heaven to deliver us from our sins. And that is where the power of the church resides today. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So, there are many challenges for the church. There are challenges when the church is in need, and there are challenges when the church is dealing with prosperity. And I don't know which is harder. Satan uses both of them to distract us from our purpose. But Jesus promised that the church will continue. We're going to go to Daniel chapter 2, and we're going to read this whole chapter. It's a long chapter, but I want to focus on a prophecy about empires and about God's empire. The stone not cut out with hands. So Daniel chapter 2. It's not the longest chapter in Daniel, but it's a little bit of a lengthy story, so... Now, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. So have you, any of you all had a bad dream where you woke up and you just could not go back to sleep? Milo has. Okay. The rest of you all do, don't. Elliot has, too. So there's a couple people here. The rest of you all just, you know, even if you have a bad dream, you just go right back to sleep. Uh, I'm usually pretty tired. I don't remember my dreams, except if they're really bad. Um, and um, so anyway, this doesn't happen to me too often. Um, then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans 
to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made in ash heap. However, if you tell me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord or ruler, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this reason, the king was was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Ariok made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him some time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning the secret so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. For wisdom and might are his, and he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers, You have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's demand. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. 
But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this, and he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me, because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes, who make known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image, this great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer thrashing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is a dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you, you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in those days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will, sure, will come to pass after this. This stream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded, that they should present an offering, an incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him a ruler over the whole province of Babylon, and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. So, it's a long story. Um, and not much happens, right? It begins with Nebuchadnezzar having a dream, a bad dream. And 
I think he could remember the dream just fine, but he wants the magicians to prove their worth by telling him uh, what the dream was. He says, uh, and they, they answer, of course, you know, King, we'll gladly interpret the dream if you just tell us what you dreamed. And he says, no, no, you tell me what I dreamed, and you tell me the interpretation, or I won't believe that you know the interpretation. So, and I don't know, um, you know, they, they had books and things like that that they could come up with interpretations of dreams, but there's no way that they knew what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed during the night. And they said, you know, this is something that only the gods can tell, and the gods don't live around here. You're expecting too much of us. So, have you ever had a boss like this who, who just had just unreasonable expectations? Um, well, you can always quit if your boss has unreasonable expectations, but when your king tells you, you know what? If you all don't tell me what I dreamed last night, I am going to kill you all, and I'm going to turn your houses into an ash heap. Um, you're kind of stuck. Um, and so... You know, the men knew that there was something uh, something that they couldn't do, and um, they, it seems like they sort of gave up. Uh, it's just a lost cause. Um, and Daniel somehow wasn't there. We don't know where he was, um, but um, my guess is he just wasn't that important at this point, so they called the sort of the chief of the magicians and the sorcerers and people like that, and Daniel was kind of down the ways a little bit. He was younger, and um, so... So he first found out about it whenever somebody came to kill him. And he says, hey, wait a second. What, what's, what's, what's trying to kill me? And this man named Ariok said the whole story. And so Daniel prayed. And God gave him both the dream and the meaning of the dream. And so here we find Daniel at the end of this singing a song. He thanks God for revealing the meaning of the dream to him. He praises God for being over all, even over kings. And that's, that's important in the context of this dream, isn't it? God is over the kingdoms of this world. And then he talks about the transitory nature of kings. So, you know, people would come to the kings of those days and they would say, oh, king, live forever, and they knew he wouldn't. And so, you know, there's a tendency for people to flatter um, kings because they knew uh, that's what was expected. But, um, but kings don't live forever, and many of them die pretty violent deaths. Um, and God has control over the times and seasons of this world. So when Daniel went to the king, he kept his humility. Um, he'd done something pretty amazing, um, but he knew that it wasn't something that he had done. It was something that God had done. And so he wanted to give glory to God as a result. So he spoke humbly to the king. Um, and I think this probably impressed Nebuchadnezzar more than if he had said, you know what, king, you're right. I'm a pretty cool guy. <laughs> None of the other magicians could do, the, could do this, could they? Um, and even though the interpretation of the dream was a little bit negative um, from Babylon's standpoint, the king still rewarded Daniel and made him an important man. So what was the meaning of the dream? So Daniel said that each part of the statue referred to a world empire. 
And Daniel wasn't specific. He didn't say, oh, you know, these things are, um, and name the kingdoms. But we can sort of identify them, can't we? The head of gold was the kingdom of Babylon. The body of silver, the Persian, um, or some people call it the medium Persian empire. The belly and thighs of brass were the Greek empire under Alexander. And then the legs of iron were the Roman empire. And then some people are a little bit uncertain about um, the mixture of iron and clay. Some people think it's the later end of the Roman Empire when it was split in two and um, became East and West um, Roman Empire. Some people think it was Europe after the fall of the Roman Empire. It doesn't really matter. It, whatever it was, it wasn't very strong at that point, was it? And it just all sort of fell apart. And then a stone that was... Cut out without hands, it turned into a mountain that spread throughout the world, is the church. Not Bethel, but the church. In the year 1453, Emperor Constantine XI, Pelagos, was surrounded by the Ottoman Turks. He was the last ruler of the vestiges of the Roman Empire, an empire that had stood for over a thousand years. In terms of his empire, it meant nothing. He ruled over a city and just a few miles of territory around it. And as the Ottomans threatened the city, he sent out a request to the Pope of that time to ask for help. Please come and rescue me from these invaders or my empire. My city will fall. Only a few ships were sent out from Europe, there have been different crusades over the years, and the Europeans had their own things to mess with, and they didn't have any time or money or troops to send that direction. At one time, the city of Constantinople had boasted a population of nearly one million residents, but at this point, the population had dwindled to scarcely 50,000 men and women and children. For 53 days, the Ottoman Turks troops assailed the walls and attacked the port. They used cannons against the walls. It dated back to the time, the walls dated back to the time of Justinian in the year 500. When they couldn't get into the port by sea, they pulled their ships over the hills on grease skids and managed to get them into the harbor that way. They tunneled under the walls, although each time the defenders were able to stop them using Greek fire. Finally, on May 29th, 1453, Mehmed II's troops broke through into the city. They killed the emperor, and they established Constantinople as the new capital of their empire. And for much of Europe, the fall of Constantinople came as a shock. It had been the capital of the remnants of the Roman Empire for years on end. So it was 3.30 that Constantine had split the empire and established a capital in Constantinople. And ever since that time, over a thousand years, Constantinople had somehow survived. And yet it should have come as no surprise to any of them that empires fall, because that is the message of Daniel. And yet, should this story fill us with dread. America will fall someday, and people talk about that as though it's the worst thing that could possibly happen. America could fall someday, and it may fall someday soon, and yet the church will continue. 
We have hope, don't we? Because the stone will become a mountain that fills the world. God's kingdom has come to earth, and we are a part of it. This stone is not cut out with hands. It's not the results of earthly effort. And it will not fall to earthly empires. So we have seen in history that Satan tries to destroy the church in two different ways. He has tried through persecution. So, you know, particularly back in the days of the Roman Empire or in the days of, um, well, even now in many Muslim countries, People who choose to, to honor the name of Christ are treated very badly. And then there are times when Satan has used prosperity to try to, to get us distracted. So, you know, when Constantine allowed Christianity to become a, a significant um, part of the, the Roman Empire, um, that was hard for the church to handle, too. The Pope became a real leader. Um, it was Constantine who called the Council of Nicaea, not the, not the church leaders. Um, and we know that the church has not always dealt very well with prosperity. Um, and we don't always deal well with it today. Um, and yet, I think we would make a mistake if we think that, um, that even in the dark ages that we would talk about, that there was not a solid group of people, men and women, who were desiring to serve God. They may have been a remnant, but they were continuing on. The church will spread throughout the earth, and this is a blessing too. You know, we went to the Museum of the Bible um, about a year ago, I guess, um, and um, they have a place where they have a list of all the languages into which the Bible has been translated. Some of them, the Bible only exists as a New Testament. Some of it, it's been translated the whole Bible. And then there's some which it hasn't been started. Um, but it is a blessing that there are hundreds of languages where people can read the Bible in their own tongue. And there are more happening every day. Romans 5, 1 through 5. This is a passage where Paul talks about hope. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. These verses are so packed. It begins by saying that faith begins with grace. And grace, of course, is the key. This is the unmerited favor, the, the unasked for, unearned blessing that God gives us, that allows us to enter into salvation. Um, but Paul moves from that to say that we glory in our trials. And I don't really understand this. Um, what does it mean to glory 
in trials and tribulations. Um, this, is not, this is not saying that we glory in temptation, okay? So sometimes people confuse the words tribulation or trial and temptation. So temptations are, are direct um, um, draws to sinful behavior, whereas trials are hard times or suffering that we might be going through. Um, and I can't say that I've ever enjoyed hard times, um, but I do know that I grow more in hard times than what I do whenever um, things are easy. But Paul tells us the things that we receive after we go through trials. So we develop perseverance, um, stick-to-itiveness. How well do you stick to things that, um, that you've started Bible makes it clear that there's a reward for those who are faithful to the end. The next thing is character. Um, Phillips uh, would translate this as a mature character. Um, so we sometimes hear people saying um, that somebody is a character, and that usually just means somebody's really odd or quirky. Or, um, you know, it's not usually a good thing. But Paul isn't talking about that sort of thing. He's saying that we develop a virtuousness in our souls that um, that is important for a follower of Christ to have. And this brings us to hope. So what is it that brings us hope when we're in the midst of suffering? Um, so when people invest in the stock market, they tend to feel that tomorrow will be very much like yesterday. So if they invested in a stock and they made a whole bunch of money, I'm not a, I don't invest in the stock market, but if, if they, they made a whole bunch of money yesterday, then they assume that whatever money they put in the stock market tomorrow will make the same amount of money. Um, but if they lost a whole bunch of money yesterday, they're going to be pretty discouraged to put the money back in. Uh, but Paul says, you know what? The harder the trials are, the more the hope will grow in you. People in the world around us have come to the conclusion that life is hard and they can only expect the worst from it. But what we learn from trials is that God is faithful and that he will walk beside us through them all. And then we end with God's love being poured out on us and through us. How deep the Father's love for us, how kind beyond all measure. Is there any better reason to hope this morning than that God's love is revealed to us through his son? Hope for the church. We should have confidence that the church will continue. And when I say the church, of course, I don't mean that a thousand years from now, if the Lord tarries, that there will be a church here meeting in this gym. I hope not. I mean, I don't know. I hope they have a better building even than this. Who knows in a thousand years what they'll have. But, um, but we believe that people will continue to serve Christ for as long as he tarries. There is a, a fear in medicine to take hope away. So this, was, this used to be a really big thing. So doctors would lie to their patients. Um, I read about an actor by the name of Valentino, and I don't know anything about him, but this was back in the 1920s. And, um, and he um, had some kind of um, peritonitis. So he was sick, and he was in the hospital, and the doctors knew he was dying. He was in his, his late 20s, early 30s. And, um, 
They knew he was dying. They didn't have antibiotics. They didn't have any way to treat him, and they refused to tell him. He went into a coma believing that he was on his road to recovery because they were afraid of taking away hope. And doctors don't do that anymore. You know, maybe, I don't know, it's just this sort of fear, like if you take away somebody's hope, the next thing that you know, they'll just give up um, and um, you'll be calling the coroner. But our hope is not some mythical treatment that hasn't been invented yet or some miraculous event that has to happen. Our hope is dependent on the fact that God has established the church and he works through the church. It's the same reason that we have hope in trials. So God has promised that the church will endure. He has promised that he will work through the church. And he uses humans within the church to demonstrate his love and faithfulness to each other and to the people around. So Luke 6, verse 38 says, Given it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will it be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. The picture here is one of a marketplace. You go into the marketplace and you're buying grain or some other produce, and rather than the person pouring in the grain and then kind of smoothing off the top, they push down on the grain bucket, and then they put some more on top, and they push down again, and they try to cram as much in so it's overflowing on the top. And God says, you know, when I bless you, I will use people to do it, and I will make sure that it is abundant blessing. God doesn't give to us directly. He doesn't send angels to us usually like he did to the prophet, Eli um, to the prophet Elijah when he was on his way out into the desert, but he uses other people. The people around you this morning have blessed you, and it has been God blessing you through them. Let's go to Revelation chapter 2. This is another... Um, relatively lengthy passage. Um, but I want to, to just think about a couple of churches that, um, that were spoken to here. There were seven churches that John wrote to, um, and we're just going to look at the church at Philadelphia and Laodicea because there's such a contrast there. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write these things, saying, He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens, and no one shuts, and shuts, and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you've kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven, from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither 
cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we've read here two of the messages for the churches. There were seven different churches. Um, And when I was reading over these in preparation for this sermon, two things stood out to me. First of all, is every single church had problems. They were weak. They had some sinful thing that they were struggling with. Basically, we could say, you know, those churches, like our churches today, were made up of humans. And yet every single church was given hope. Even the church of Laodicea was given hope. So maybe it would have been helpful to read over all these messages to the churches, but I think we get a little bit of a glimpse here. So what were the qualities of the church of Philadelphia? It was small and weak. It had kept Christ's word. It had not denied his name. And God promised that he would keep them from great trials, and he would bring to nothing those who would oppose them. What were the qualities of the church of Laodicea? It was wealthy. It was comfortable. It had very poor insight into what God saw them as. And there's a disconnect there, wasn't there? God says that they are naked, poor, and diseased, blind. Blind to their own condition, blind to the need of those around them. And he offers hope. Gold, salve, white garments. Even here, in the worst situation of all the seven churches... John wrote to you, there was hope. Some would overcome despite the church that they were in. And they would sit down on thrones one day. I don't know which church we are here this morning. We're probably a mixture of a number of different churches. Maybe we're a little bit of Laodicea, and maybe we're a little bit of Philadelphia, with a little bit of Sardis, or or Ephesus thrown in. You know, when I read those, I, I can see little bits You know, we are weak, and we know we're weak, and yet uh, that's probably the most important thing, isn't it? Because Laodicea thought they were strong when they were weak. But the most important thing for all these churches was their willingness to accept, um, to accept the help, um, and the help that Jesus was offering to them. So in AD 64, there was a a huge fire in the city of Rome, capital of the Roman Empire. And this had devastating economic effects. Somewhere around 70% of the city of Rome burned to the ground. No one 
knew how it started. Um, fires were not uncommon in those days. Um, it uh, seemed like it started in some merchant shops and then the embers just blew around and the fire raged for six days before they finally got under control. And Tacitus tells that the Emperor Nero, um, that people didn't really like very much, um, decided that he could um, blame the Christians for setting this fire. And so he began to persecute the Christians around Rome um, and other parts of the empire. And they covered Christians in pitch and burned them. They put animal skins on them and let dogs tear them to pieces. And they crucified many. Um, this was only 30 years after the death of Jesus. And two of the main early leaders of the church, uh, the apostles Peter and Paul, were both killed during this persecution. And the amazing thing is, although the church was small and weak, this persecution did not end it. There were only probably a few thousand people who were Christians at this point, and yet, just in another hundred years, um, something like 1% of the population was Christian. Um, sorry, close to 10% was Christian. 1 Corinthians 3.9 says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. And Luke 12.32 says, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I love this verse. It doesn't say that we're big or strong or powerful. It just says that God has promised to give us the kingdom. I don't know where your heart is at this morning. Some of us are probably natural pessimists, and some of us are hope-filled all the time. I, I probably tend to be more on the pessimistic side of things. One of those people who, when something bad happens in the morning, I'm sure the rest of my day is just going to continue on the same tack. But hope of the church does not depend on me. It depends on God, on his goodness, his mercy, and his grace. And though there is a great persecution, even though there is a great falling away, there is hope. These times have come before, and they will come again until Jesus returns. But God will make certain that there is a faithful remnant, a church who is desiring to serve him and follow him, even here in Gladys, Virginia. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, I thank you that we have hope this morning and that that hope is not dependent on any one of us, but is dependent on your promise and your faithfulness and your grace working in our lives. And I do pray, Lord, that as we share in this nomination service that you would work, that you would bring a a man or group of men who are ready to serve you. And I just ask, Lord, that um, you continue to work here at Bethel. Help us to serve you as we're able, even though we are weak. In Jesus' name we pray.